0: Father, again, we do thank you for this day, a day that you have made, a day that you have called us. Lord, call us now to hear what your Holy Spirit has to say to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to uh, kind of continue on from from what I last preached. Uh, We're in the Gospel of John. Um, and I know that Pastor Michael and Pastor Wade have been preaching through the Gospel of John, and it's a little bit scary when you're a guest preacher, and you're like, oh, you know, I'll prepare this. And then you check the website, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, they already went through this. In fact, this very passage was preached about 20 months ago by Pastor Wade. Very good sermon. I'm going to have a slightly different take on it. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, 20 months ago, you know, nobody remembers sermons from that long ago. So, <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to be in the Gospel of John, Chapter 2. Uh, A fairly familiar passage, starting at verse 13, going to the end of the chapter, verse 25. So, John chapter 2, 13 through 25. Please give your undivided attention to the reading of God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews then said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. This is God's word so happy new year everyone i guess it's kind of reaching uh the end of the time at which i can uh, actually say this um and you know maybe you might ask uh those of you who made new year's resolutions how many of them have survived to to now um you know if, if they survived to uh, the second week then congratulations uh you're probably better than 99 percent of the population but that sort of shows us again again why we need to come back to maybe our familiar stories, come back to the Gospels, come back to meet Jesus. Because, you know, we're not really so good at being consistent. It's like, you know, we, we hear something, we're like, yeah, yeah, we got that. No, actually, we, we really don't. Um, and often I'm astounded over and over when I come to the Gospels. I mean, you know, Michael talked me up, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm that brilliant. But I mean, you know, assuming that I am. Um, <laughs> I still find new things about Jesus when I when I come to the Gospels, and you know I think a lot of times you know we, we fall back into sort of a cultural mode, a comfortable, familiar mode with Jesus. You know who's Jesus? He's mild mannered. He loves everyone. He's my friend. Um, I don't know if you watch South Park, you might think of him as some kind of hippie. Um, but you know when when I Right, you know, come to Jesus in the Gospels. You know, when I was a kid, I always remembered, I'd I'd read about Jesus, and I'd always be like, huh? Why is Jesus doing this? Why did Jesus say that? That makes no sense. Jesus didn't even answer their question. I mean, come on. Like, you know, what's so great about this guy? And I have to say, props to the disciples for sticking with him. Um, And, you know, we went to seminary, and when you're at seminary, you learn all the answers, right? So I, 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 you know, now now I, I know, oh, this is the answer to that, this is the answer to that, this is the answer to that. But I think, you know, what we want to do when we come to reorient ourselves with Jesus is to go back to that childhood, huh? Jesus, what is she doing again? Moment. And so, you know, here we come to a passage, you know, Jesus is, you well, know, I mean, you know, he says some things that are just like, you know, Jesus, why'd you put it that way? Um, but he's not just doing that. He, he does something that nobody thinks is a good idea. So, let's first consider the context and the chronology of when John puts this passage. You know, in the other Gospels, we also have an account of Jesus um, overturning tables, chasing out people at the temple. Uh, but for everybody else, when does it happen? It happens after the triumphal entry, when Jesus is riding in on the back of, of a donkey. Um, and then after he does this at the temple, these plots to kill him arise in Jerusalem. So in the other three Gospels, this story is told as the beginning of the end. But here in John, it's kind of interesting because this is not the end of the Gospel. This is John chapter 2. And there's like 18 more chapters to go. Um, this is right after... The first sign. So what's John doing here? I mean, did Jesus do this once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry? Um, I mean, this is actually kind of a hard answer, a question to answer because, you know, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't get a sense that temple authorities were saying, ah, we've seen this before. Oh, wait! Same guy! Um... But on the other hand, I mean, you know, so so we're not going to resolve necessarily this question. And, you know, chronology in the Gospels is, is a little challenging, right? We usually estimate three years of Jesus' ministry because actually in John, the Gospel of John itself, we count three Passovers. One is here, one is in chapter 6, verse 4, one is in chapter 11, verse 55. You know, there's a lot of reasons to believe that Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. But actually... Doing this kind of dating in the Gospels is not a reliable way to do it. Um, and one way that we can demonstrate this is actually if you look at two of the other gospel uh temple cleansings in uh in the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospels of Mark, is that there's another event that happens around them that they record, which is Jesus curses a fig tree. And when he curses this fig tree, well, the Gospel of Matthew says he cursed the fig tree because it bore no fruit, and it withered right away. And then he goes off and he does this stuff at the temple. The Gospel of Mark, interestingly enough, Mark, the guy who always says everything happened immediately, and right away this happened, and right away that happened, and right away that happened. Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then he goes to the temple. And then after they come out of the temple, the disciples are like, hey, the fig tree's withered. And Mark, the guy who says everything happens immediately, didn't say that this happened immediately. Um, You know, it's, so, so the thing is that we have to recognize that when the Gospels place things, it's not necessarily chronological order, but it's trying to orient us in the way that they want us to understand the story. And John places this pretty much near the beginning of his gospel. In the first two chapters, I mean, right, this is the beginning of John. What do we see, right? Everybody knows the the passage, in the beginning was the word. The word was uh, with God, and the word was God, right? We see a new creation in the beginning. Uh, We see seven days uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 2. We see the first sign. Or for a sign of a wedding, a party. A sign, a sign which is a sign of, of um, a resurrection. A sign of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, John, at the beginning, talks about what? A new temple. Chapter 1, verse 14, speaks of Jesus coming um, to, a lot of translations might say, pitch his tent with us. Uh, some of your translations, which are not very good translations, says he just came to dwell with us. Um, that doesn't quite get to, to what it's saying. But pitching a tent is reminiscent of a particular tent in the Old Testament, which is what? The tabernacle. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was before the temple was built. In a sense, this was the mobile temple. The place where you come to meet God. In fact, you couldn't, you couldn't go in to meet God because God was filling the place and you're just like, no, no, not going in there. That would, that would be death. Um, but rather, Jesus comes. He's a new mobile temple. Moves around where you meet God. The Spirit descends on him at baptism the way that the Spirit descended on the tabernacle in the temple. Interesting uh, little thing that Jesus says at the end of chapter 1. Um... Where he says that you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, that's a reference to Jacob's ladder. When Jacob uh, fell into a dream, and he saw uh, in that place that there were angels ascending and descending uh, up like a, a ladder or a staircase or um, you know a, a staircase-like temple. Um, and he says, "Surely God is in this place." He called it Bethel, the House of God, the place where you meet God. And so what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying he's the new temple. He is the place, the one in which you meet God. And so, finally, this temple, Jesus, comes to the actual temple. What happens when the temples collide? John is wrapping this up and showing us not the beginning of the end, but what you might call it the end of the beginning. And the end of the beginning does what? It helps orient us to what is really important to Jesus. And here we see basically what Jesus' beef is. Uh, I mean, you know, since we're all there, you might say the beef of the beef. Um, or maybe another way we can ask this question. Um... And the question is, what's the one thing that will trigger Jesus to get violent? Have you ever thought of Jesus as a violent person? No, we normally think of, you know, a mild man, or he's my friend. Uh, but, you know, we, we normally don't tell our kids, hey kids, you know Jesus was violent? Um, what's the one thing that triggers him? You know, when, when I was in, in grad school, we were trained as, uh, as, as TAs to um, give our students trigger warnings at times, uh, you know, because we might say something where they might get, like, offended or, or really upset. So we give them a warning about it, right? Because we might, something we say might trigger them. So something here clearly triggered Jesus. Um, triggered him to the point where he makes a whip. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you know... This wasn't just Jesus, uh, you know, doing a sudden table flip. Um, this is Jesus doing premeditated violence because he actually takes the time to prepare a whip. I mean, it might not have been a big whip, as, as you know, Wade pointed out 20 months ago, but the fact that he actually he takes the time to make this thing, uh, something really got him going, okay? So what was this? Well... The animals, the money changers. Okay, so before you like you know judge uh, the the temple authorities too harshly, I want you to take a step back and understand and think through with me what these temple authorities might have been thinking. Okay, um, look, if people are coming to Jerusalem uh, to to worship, right? Uh, you're you're traveling like you know upward a hundred miles, and this is just if you're in the Holy Land. Right, if you got a, a diaspora coming from Persia, coming from Asia Minor, right, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles, and no, we don't have the Interstate Five to drive. Okay, you're walking, Uh you're walking, and you're probably walking with an ox, or a sheep, or carrying your pigeons with you. Um, so so let's see, what's 100 miles? That's like, um, like like. Berkeley to San Jose is about around 50 miles, right? I, I, I might be wrong. Maybe 60, 70 miles, okay? Uh, maybe Santa Cruz. Berkeley to Santa Cruz. How many of you have tried walking Berkeley to Santa Cruz? Now, how many of you have tried walking from Berkeley to Santa Cruz with an oxen? <laughs> so, you know, the 40s were probably thinking, you know, let's make it easy on these guys. They don't have to bring their stuff, you know? Their traveling is already hard enough. Let's provide it for them right here. And, you know, money changers. You know, people come from all over the empire. They might be using different coins, especially if they come from Persia. They don't use the same coins as, as the Roman Empire. Um, and what's more, the temple itself needs a special kind of coin to show that the purity, right? So, you know, hey, let's provide another service. Let's, let's change the coins for these pilgrims. Um, you know, for the temple authority, this was not a problem. This was a feature. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe we're also, you know, maybe there's some entrepreneurs out there and who want to serve the Lord, and we're giving them an opportunity to serve the Lord. It's not necessarily the concept of greed or profit per se. We don't have evidence that, you know, the people doing this were necessarily or particularly corrupt. That might have been happening, but, but that's not the focus of the passage. The problem was that this was happening at all, where it was happening. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, the contrast with the wedding, uh, right? These, these two very different signs, a, a wedding, uh, a sign of, of great joy, and here, uh, of great conflict. Jesus had a very different reaction at the wedding when his mom told him, Hey, they are out of wine. Do you guys remember what it was? Well, well, actually, it's more, it's more, it's more, um, uh, harsh. it's harsher than that. Uh, it's, what, what, what does this have to do with me? Literally, what, what, what are you to me? You know, Jesus is not, his, his goal is not to make everybody as earthly happy as possible. But notice one thing, and, and this is where we want to get particular about recognizing that Jesus is a guy. And it's not just that, you know, what would Jesus do, everything that Jesus does, we do, because if that's true, then every time we go to a wedding, there's a problem. We'd be like, not my problem. You know, and every time we, we go to, I don't know, they, you know go to a church and they have bookstores, just flip the tables. No, I mean, no. It's not a, a what would Jesus do thing, and then I follow him blindly. But it's understanding who this Jesus is as a guy. It wasn't his wedding. It's his house. Now, now, the Jewish temple authorities didn't recognize that at the time, but this temple belongs to him. It's his father's house. And he's the son. It's his house. And now, think about it this way. Imagine you, you know, you have a house, right? And you have a house, congratulations, you've made it in the Bay Area. Um, and you decide to invite friends and family over for a potluck. And and you know one guy you you set particularly the only charge of helping you to organize things says you know something potlucks are a pain for everybody so you know I'm going to take up every available space in the house to sell potluck items to people that they can like basically present and you know this is space that people could like you know mingle get to know each other but no this guy is taking up all the space so he can provide this convenience and sell this stuff now the guests can look at that and say wow this is not right. <laughs> but, no, they'll just be, probably be polite about it. You know, maybe some of you more gruff guys might you know, make a few underhanded comments about it. But it's only if you own the house that you have the right to tell them get out. Take the stuff out. Now. And that's what gives Jesus the right, where nobody else really maybe had the right to do this. Because this was happening in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles. A place where the Gentiles would come to pray to meet God. And now you're trying to make I mean imagine trying to do this worship service and you got like sheep here, ox there, all these pigeons flooding around, people trying to catch the pigeons as as you know, as you know, Marshall's trying to lead it, and somebody comes up and like you know grabs a pigeon and brings it back down, or or you know, the, the sheep starts nuzzling him as he's singing, and you know, I'm preaching up here, and then I've got this ox like breathing down my throat, my my neck. Um you know, Jesus says, No, this is my house. A house of prayer. And this is the one thing that will get them violent. Is that people are stopping my people from worshipping. People are stopping my people from meeting God. And this temple, right, understand, the temple symbolizes something, right? You know, as I said, Jesus is the temple. This temple actually symbolizes him. Hebrews 8 5 says that now the temple. You you wonder why God gave Moses the exact measurements with some tent. I mean, come on, you know, we, we can we can like just make a tent, right? Good enough, right? Give exact measurements for a temple. Um because it was a pattern to represent something, to represent Jesus. And you know, when Jesus comes to this and he drives people out. Uh, all your Bibles, I, I'm pretty sure, like, I will place money on it, basically causes this uh, a temple cleansing, right? Jesus cleanses the temple or that sort of thing. Your uh, subheadings are all wrong. Jesus is not cleansing the temple. He is judging the temple. Uh, this is evident from Mark's and Matthew's gospel when it comes to the fig tree. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty evident here. Because when he comes, Jesus comes to his temple. And this temple is supposed to represent him. And when he comes to it, what does he see? Does he see something that represents him? No, it's now representing something else. And it has become worthless. And when Jesus comes to the temple, you have to realize that, uh, you know, Jesus doing this stuff is actually... uh, evoking a lot of Old Testament end times imagery. Um, and you know when when Jesus comes to the temple, it's it's basically uh you know it's it's what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord all over again. And sometimes, you know, the day of the Lord this is the day when the Lord comes. And you think, wow, that's a happy day, right? And there's sometimes it's a happy day, right? When Jesus was born, we just celebrated Christmas. Uh you know, often we'll tell about you know Jesus as a child being brought to the temple. And, you know, Jesus being brought to the temple. Wow, what a fulfillment of the promise. And now here, Jesus comes to the temple. And it's like, wow. <laughs> this is, uh, well, Jesus, you know, chill. Uh, it's the Lord not coming in promise, but now the Lord comes in judgment. Malachi 3.1, the prophet says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Um, there's a promise of, of, of some kind of renew, renewal of the temple. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. Yeah, notice the emphasis here. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. And where is this taking place? Is it taking place where the foreigners are supposed to be joining themselves to the Lord? And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Guess what this temple was not doing? Uh, you know, I, the, the next one, Zechariah, has something, and I, I laughed when I came across this passage. Uh, this is the end times image. But, but look at what he says here, Zechariah 14, 21. And every pot in Jerusalem and, and Judah will, shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, I know this is sometimes imagery, but I laugh because it's like there's going to be no more traitor. And what does Jesus find? Traitors, left, right, and center. They're all trading stuff. This is not the temple as it's supposed to be. This is a temple misrepresenting what it's supposed to be. This is a temple which is failing in what the temple is supposed to be. It's not a cleansing it is a judgment. Jeremiah seven eleven. Has this house which has called by my name become a den of robbers? Behold, I have seen it, declares the Lord. You know, the temple authorities were, were scoffing when they asked, you know, Jesus, what gives you the right to do this kind of thing? I mean, you know, in their minds it's a rhetorical question, right? I mean, nothing gives you the right to do this. But Jesus gave that answer. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. Because he is the real temple. And this temple, what has this temple come to represent? 46 years to build. Actually, this temple has been in the works since, like, basically 520 BC. So it's about 550 years. Uh, after they returned, this is not quite the kind of modest temple that Zerubbabel and Joshua built uh, at the time. Uh, but this basically was uh, 46 years since Herod the Great began taking this temple to rebuild it, to rival the glory of Solomon's old temple. In fact, it's still under construction at this point in time. Uh, the irony is that it would not be finished until 64 A.D., if any of you know your ancient history, uh, you guys know what happened six years later. It's destroyed. it's destroyed. The Romans come in and tear it down. Six Only six years after they finished building this thing. What people were seeing was the glory of the world, and that's what the temple in Jerusalem had become. It was the glory of the world. And that is the glory that Jesus declares the judgment upon. Why does Jesus not entrust himself to the people? Because he knows this is what people are now coming to. They are not coming to meet God. The people are trying to meet God. They have like this ox breathing down their necks. When we come, to church? Are we here to meet Jesus? Are we here to, I don't know, look good, please your parents, be, uh, you know, some kind of culturally respectable person? of well, these days in the culture here, here in the Bay Area, it's probably not that respectable to go to church anymore. But what are we trying to accomplish here? Do we come expecting to join ourselves to Jesus to meet God? When we come to meet Jesus, what Jesus do we meet? A Jesus of our own devising, or of a Jesus that confronts confounds us, a Jesus who will not be mastered by our right answers and our you know even our reformed theologies, but the Jesus who masters us you know on the eve of the Reformation, uh, one of the top um, English re- Renaissance scholars was handed a, a copy of the New Testament, and uh, you know At this point in time, is was all the rage. You know, hey, let's read the Bible in Greek because we didn't do that before for a long time. Let's do it now. And he read it, and his response, either these are not the Gospels or we are not Christians. The heartbeat of Jesus is that zeal for your house will consume me. And perhaps as a double sign, when he judged this temple for being the glory of this world. Another temple will come under judgment. The true temple himself will come under judgment. Zeal for his father's house will consume him and consumed him liber- literally as he hung on the cross. This is the Jesus who has come to say things that we don't really expect, maybe that we don't really want, to do things that we're like, hey, 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 you know, like, Jesus, let's be more respectable here. But he's here to flip us around, turn us around, think in a different way. Not necessarily to repeat what he does, regurgitate uh, things that he says, but as we get to know him, to understand, you know, the wisdom to apply where his priorities help to reshape and reorient our priorities. And in this new year, how does Jesus ask us as we reconsider our lives, our directions? Where do you want us to be? Lord, here I am. Send me. And this is our great hope. Because our Lord is our risen Lord, and all authority is with him. The world may rage, but take heart, for he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for seeing, helping us to see Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to open our eyes to get to know Jesus more and more. Not just a distant figure, but truly our Lord and Savior, truly our friend. But our friends don't always do what we want them to do. And let Jesus be that friend who does things that we don't want to do and brings us to places where we don't necessarily want to be. Why? Because it's a better place. So Lord, we pray to give us a heart of zeal for you In your house, in Jesus' name, amen.